Welcome to a Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Here is your host, Antoine Martel. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of a Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Today I have Paul Moore on the show. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show today and I'm excited to talk with you. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much, Antoine. So tell everybody a little bit more or tell everybody a little bit about yourself and um, and what you're doing today in real estate. Okay. So I am a founder of a company called Wellings Capital. Wellings Capital has two uh, real estate investment funds for accredited investors. We uh, pool together investors capital and we go out and invest in large self-storage, mobile home parks, uh, apartments. Basically, we're getting access to uh, really good deals that are hard to get for individual investors. And so by using the syndication model, we're able to uh, generate a lot of passive income for people, uh, especially people who have good day jobs and they're not ready or they're not able to uh, quit their day job. Uh, that's that's pretty much what we're doing right now. Awesome. And then how did you get when did you get involved in real estate? How did you get involved? Yeah, I got an engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And then uh, <laughs> after that, I got an MBA, which was not a mistake. And then I went to Ford Motor Company for five years. Um, after that, I had my own staffing firm in Detroit for uh, another five or six years. We sold that to a publicly traded company. I was fortunate enough to be finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year in Michigan two years in a row. Wow. And uh, when when we got out of that, um, didn't know what to do. And I considered myself an investor and the founder of a nonprofit organization. But, you know, Antoine, I didn't know the first thing about investing. Yeah. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe, mm -hmm. and you've got a chance to make a return. And I confused those two. Uh, you know, Paul Samuelson was the first uh, Nobel Prize winner from the US in economics, and he said, investing should be more like watching grass grow or watching paint dry. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. <laughs> so. We, I did a lot of speculating and I made a lot of money and I lost a lot of money. I did some investing and I made some money and lost some money as well. But I didn't really understand investing till I was probably in my early 50s uh, when I really realized that, you know, risk and return. You know, there's a, there's a belief that, you know, low risk, low return, high risk. Fill in high the blank. Return. Most people think high return, <laughs> but it's not. It's high potential return. It's also yeah. a very high potential for loss. And again, that goes back to speculating. So I learned a lot of lessons over the years. Anyway, it was around the year 2000, and my buddy and I were bored trying to figure out what to do next. And we heard you could buy houses on the courthouse steps uh, for cheap. And so we went, we evaluated this house. There was obviously nobody there. So we looked in all the windows. It looked like it was worth about $65,000. And so we said, let's go to the courthouse steps and see how high it gets bid up. We won't take any money. Just in case we are tempted to bid, we absolutely are going to be disciplined and not. So we didn't go with any money at all. And you had to have money to bid. Yeah. Well, it was an icy, snowy day in late December. We were the only people there, and they started the bidding at 34000 And we 
pleaded with the auctioneer to go get lunch while we ran and got a cashier's check. And we did. We bought it. We bought wow. it for $4,000. And we literally just swept it. I think we painted some rooms, put it back on the market with a for sale by owner sign in the yard and sold it for 65000 in about four hours. Oh, my God. And so um, it was a great start. Now, it gave us some false confidence that we were really smart. It turned out that the neighbor had been looking for a house to buy for her mom for ages. And so um, we lost money on two of the next four deals. And we realized it wasn't quite as easy as we thought. But anyway, that's how we got started. We ended up flipping dozens and dozens of homes. We did a bunch of rent to own, lease option sandwiches. We did, which I think is a great way to get into real estate investing, by the way. We can talk about that if you want. I ended up flipping lots, uh, high-end waterfront lots. I ended up building seven or eight modular homes, two stick-built homes, starting a subdivision. And uh, wow. then I eventually got into multifamily years later. Wow. Can you explain? I've never heard lease sandwich. What did you say? Yeah, it's either a lease option sandwich or a rent-to-own sandwich. What it means is if you are starting out in real estate, and I imagine some of your listeners might be in this position, and you don't have a lot of money and you don't have a whole lot of time um, or experience and you're trying to figure out how to break into this, what you can do is you become the meat in a lease option sandwich. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek there, but here's how it works. You go out and you find a house that's almost ready to be foreclosed. Somebody's getting ready to lose the house <clears throat> or they're, um, you know, they really, really want to sell badly. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's going to go to the courthouse steps in three weeks. You saw it in the auction pages of the newspaper and you go out and strike a deal with them and say, look, how far behind are you on your mortgage? I'm going to try to help. Yeah. I want to try to help you save your credit. And you literally can do that. And uh, they basically say, yeah, I'm three uh, $800 payments behind and now I owe all these court costs and so basically I owe about $3,500. You say, okay, great. If you're willing to sign over the house ownership into a land trust, I can't promise I can catch you up and keep you paid up, but I'll do my best to make this work. So they sign it into a land trust. You have to explain all that. And I'm not going to do that here. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't hurt them at all because they're going to lose the house anyway. Yeah. And then basically you take over payments of the house. You go then immediately try to find a renter for the house. So you're basically renting to own the house from them. And now you go find somebody to rent to own it from you. But now instead of you... Uh, charging, you know, you're paying 800 for the mortgage, let's say another 100 for taxes and insurance just to make it simple. So yeah. you got 900 bucks out of pocket every month. You turn around and rent to own it to somebody with marginal credit for, say, 1300 bucks, and you pocket that $400 a month. Got it. All the repairs and maintenance are on that person because they are basically buying the house from you. You get a $4,000, let's say, down payment from them. So you break even on, you know, paying off the 3,500 that are in arrears and you maybe put a few bucks in your pocket and then you put in 400 bucks a month in your pocket. Now, what you do is you set the hmm. sale price with the second buyer, the buyer, uh, you set at a much higher level. So if the mortgage payoff, and this is a real example now, uh, is um, $140,000, that's a real number we had, uh, and the house is worth, let's say, 175 today, you set the sale price at, let's say, 195 because you say, hey, it's going to take you four years and it's going to go up 
5000 a year in value. That's about 25 3% uh, uh, increment per year, which is very fair. Yeah. And then you say, okay, I'll, I'll let $100 a month, if you make all your t- payments on time and in full, I'll let $100 go toward the purchase. And that's what you do. Wow. And so you're really not out of, any, out of anything but your time. If the buyer fails, well, you've already told the seller in the first place, I'll do my best to keep up on payments. I can't guarantee it. You try to put another buyer in. The buyer usually does fail, by the way. Um, then you try to put another buyer in, and yeah. then you do it a third and fourth time. And now you're whittling down that mortgage every time. Yeah. And at some point, somebody will close on it, and you'll take the profit. Awesome. And then the pro for the person who is you know, about to go into bankruptcy or lose their house was that they get their credit saved, and they don't have that on their history anymore, right? Because they'll be back on their payments. Yeah. So basically the payments will start again. You know, a foreclosure from what they tell me hurts your credit worse and for longer than a bankruptcy. And so you're saving them from having that foreclosure. Oh, wow. Crazy. Yeah, I know there's a lot of, I follow a bunch of Instagram guys who are doing, who started off wholesaling, but now they're getting into some creative financing deals like i know there's like a million different ways that you can split up the deal and stuff like that as well okay awesome and then were you doing all that stuff in in michigan in detroit back in 2000 and no when we sold our company in detroit uh in 98 we had two young kids we were having stuff stolen out of our car and out of our yard and near detroit and we just you know detroit was imploding at the time we decided we kind of overreacted though antoine we moved to a mountaintop in the blue ridge mountains (laughs) like an hour from society and uh so uh we actually um in, in 2004, we ended up moving back near town, but we still are in the Blue Ridge Mountains and we love it. Got it. Awesome. And then when did you start getting out of the residential space and getting into the multifamily side of things? Yeah. So what happened is uh, we, we all remember a little thing that happened in 2008 and nine, mm-hmm. um, this little collapse. Um, I actually ended up taking two or three years off of real estate uh, and I still have a website. It's called smithmountainhomes.com. I've had it since 2004. It generates leads for realtors at a resort in Virginia called Smith Mountain Lake. But I, I kept that running. It took me maybe an hour or two a week. And I got into marketing copywriting. I trained under some great copywriters. And I learned that. And at some point, I heard about this oil and gas uh, find in North Dakota and this huge uh, gold rush, if you will, of mm-hmm. people going up there to uh, drill for oil. There's 19, 18,000 job openings at any given time in northwest North Dakota. There was not enough housing. So we decided to build a multifamily property. And um, there were guys sleeping in their trucks and their cars wow. in the Walmart parking lot along the road, people starting fires inside RVs to keep warm in the 30 de- degrees below winter. And so we built these beautiful multifamily property and we were charging um, basically a going rate for uh, apartments in the U.S. is about a dollar a square foot a month. I know it's not that way in L.A., but let's say an 800 square foot apartment, about yep. 800 a month. That's mm-hmm. kind of the going rate. Yep. Well, we were charging 13 times that much. We were charging $13 a square foot and keeping it full because these oil workers needed a place to stay and their oil companies oh, were wow. happy to fund the hundred twenty oh, wow. dollars a night we were charging. And we were charging basically hotel rates. Wow. That's so your first multifamily investment was a ground up construction? Yeah, it was quick, very quick, ground up. 
uh, modular construction. It was like, like in these units, we had like, yeah. a, a, you know, we bought 75 acres for dirt cheap in North Dakota. And we, uh, we built these, uh, I think it was uh, enough housing for like 150 guys. And we sold it for 8 million bucks two years later. Wow. And it was modular. So it wasn't, okay, got it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so, so you... there were a lot of more cabins, basically really, really nice factory built cabins. Got it. Okay, awesome. And then did you start first of all, how did you how did you fund that or finance that whole investment being your first ground up construction project? Uh we got um what did we do? We got a bank in Colorado Springs to put up a lot of the money, and then we got some private investors. Wow. Uh, we basically did a, a little mini friends and family syndication. Got it. And uh, my partner and I owned uh, the vast majority of that, and uh, so got that it. went really well. Awesome. Crazy. After that, we did a Hyatt Hotel in North Dakota, and everything that went right about the first project, I guess, went wrong with the Hyatt hotel and it was a, a disaster and it reminded me, I really don't think I like ground up construction yeah. more. And I really would rather be in apartments than I would in hotels anyway. Wow. Yeah. So what are a couple of things? Was this something where you bought the land Hyatt? What do they call it when Hyatt pretty much comes to you as a landowner and says, Hey, if you franchise. build this, what's it called? It was basically a franchise model. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so is that yeah. what happened here when you guys were doing that deal for the hotel? Yeah, we were building a beautiful hotel called uh, North Hill Suites is what we called it. And um, we basically decided we wanted to either link up with Marriott or Hyatt to do a really nice high-end hotel. We were already like finishing. I think we were already building like the second floor of the three floors by then. Yeah. And so we had to quickly adapt to Hyatt standards. But we, I think we built the nicest Hyatt House in America, as far as I know, and as far as I know, it still is. Wow, that's insane. How did you find it? Was that your first hotel you had ever done? Was again at <laughs> ground up? Yeah, it was uh, first one. It was uh, we built like twice, three times probably as large as we should have. It was a uh, thirty or forty percent over budget. Uh, we had to pay extra to go through the winter. All these oh things went God. wrong. The, the general contractor went bankrupt and stole like a million or two in the middle of the process. It was a mess. Wow, that's insane. So after all those things, then you landed back at multifamily. And were you? Did you start doing value at apartments since you had a bad? Yeah. Great question. So I got out of that and I, I, I thought, okay, I'm in my fifties now. And you know, <laughs> if I keep playing double or nothing, yeah. and I land on nothing uh -huh. someday when it's time to retire or something happens to me, what's going to happen to my family? So I thought, you know, I'm kind of tired of swinging for the fences. I would rather hit singles and doubles. And so I got into value add class B multifamily, I spent 25000 to hire a really good mentor who I still really like. And uh, they taught me the business, uh, spent the first year mentoring, second year building and rebuilding a website, a name, brochures, all that junk. Yep. Spent the third year, this is kind of funny, writing a book about multifamily, which is still <laughs> selling very well. Uh, it's called The Perfect Investment and uh, not an arrogant title at all, you know. And uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, that came out in the fall of 2016. It's actually going to be re-released by an, a legitimate publisher in 2020. So, awesome. um, anyway, that was the apartment world. But we actually didn't buy our first apartments 
uh, class B value add uh, apartments till after that. Now, like I said, I had done something much, much harder already in the apartment realm than the class B value add, but we bought some a little while later under Wellings Capital and decided after about a year of that, you know, we would rather be a funding source for operators than be operators ourselves. Hmm. And that's when Wellings made the shift a year and a half ago to becoming funds that invested in these other asset classes. Okay, got it. Can you explain that a little bit more for somebody who may not understand that? Yeah, so what the pivot we made? Yeah, and then now what, what Wellings Capital is actually doing compared to being an operator. Yeah, so we looked, we were having, so for about seven different reasons, uh, <laughs> we've identified um, multifamily is honestly, as we record this, Antoine, that may be different when people listen to this in six months or a year, yeah. multifamily is highly overheated. And because it's overheated, we decided, you know, we're not finding the deals we want. We're yeah. not getting the types of opportunities we hope to get. And so we decided to look out in self-storage and mobile home parks. And this is a, a, a learning point for listeners if they want to check this out. You know, you can't be good at a whole bunch of different things. And if you find a great asset class you want to jump into and you've never done it before, you don't have a team that's doing it, just because lots of other people are really profitable doesn't mean that you can easily jump <laughs> in and be profitable. Yeah. And so we realized, you know, we had a team that had done multifamily. We knew multifamily. We, we'd done these, you know, uh, several projects by then. But we did not have a team that had done self-storage and mobile home parks. So we yeah. decided, hey, why don't we just raise money and invest in best in class operators. So we spent the last year and a half and we are still on a search for the very best operators we can find with tons of experience in self storage, mobile home parks and multifamily and we're investing with them. Got it, got it. Yeah, so you guys are pretty much raising money and then investing in operators who are on the ground who have experience doing whatever they're best at, right? So yeah, that's right. Exactly. And then what are you, what is, since multifamily has been super overheated, have you guys, has Wellings Capital now started to push a lot more money towards the mobile home park space? Or what do you think is, um, you know, you said it's super hot right now, multifamily. So what are you most interested in? Is self-storage your big thing that you're looking at and you're getting more deals on self-storage because multifamily is so hot? Or what are you guys really looking at? Yeah. Right now, the portfolio year to date in 2019 is about 70% self-storage, 25% wow. uh, mobile home parks, and 5% apartments. Wow. And so we've invested in, I let's see, 35, 36 deals year to date. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. And then how are you, where are you finding these self-storage facilities and, or how are you finding the operators that are doing yeah, these? Yeah, great question. So we wanted to give our investors a diversification across asset classes, operators, geographies, and assets. And so our focus on this was not the geography, not the asset. Our, our focus was to find great operators. You know, I've been studying Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and they spend an enormous amount of time, you know, betting on the right horse. Yeah. They uh, invested billions of dollars after a 15-minute phone call with no more due diligence than that 15-minute phone call with Tom Murphy. And I believe the year was 1980, early 80s, when he bought Capital Cities ABC. 
And uh, they invested billions and billions of dollars, their largest investment ever, I think, based on a 15-minute phone call, no further due diligence, because they believed in Tom. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time trying to find operators. We get to know them. We look in their eyes. We have dinner with them. We talk to their investors, talk to their employees, see their facilities, see their projects, see their headquarters, and we ask a whole lot of questions. And once we're comfortable with them, then we're often you know, prone to invest in their deals. Not always, but often. Yeah, love it. Awesome. And where are you finding most of those self-storage facilities are today? Or, you know, out of the deals you've invested in this year, where are they? Where are most of those self-storage deals? Uh, I'm just going to do real general here. About five or six, seven are in Texas. Uh, three apartments are in uh, Minot, North Dakota. Three mobile home parks are in Minot, North Dakota. One mobile home park in Gillette, Wyoming. Um, then there's some in D.C., Dayton, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, uh, two in Denver, a couple in Pullman, Washington. Uh, they're just basically based all over the place. I don't think we have anything in California, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I agree. Yeah, I mean, I invest. I just got off a phone call with somebody too who said, you know, hey, I, if I ever find any multifamily deals here in California, would you want to invest with me on it? And I'm like, yeah, if it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, I would, but I don't want to deal with the tenants and the, you know, the laws of all those, right? The tenant landlord laws in California as well. I don't want to just don't want to deal with it, even if the return was incredible, right? And so let's go back to 2008. It doesn't sound like you. Uh, were hit too hard by 2008 or were you (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you said you took a break but i want to dive deep into that well yeah that's not the whole story so i have a podcast called how to lose money antoine okay and uh we explore people's failures pain and about half the stories come out of 2008 range including (laughs) mine um People ask me what my worst ever deal was, and then they ask me what my best deal was, and it was actually the same. Uh, going into two, uh, in, in two, in, excuse me, in '98 when I moved to Virginia, I had about a million and a half dollars in the bank from selling our company. Ten years later, I had a four million dollar switch. I had two and a half million in debt wow. uh, against all these properties. A lot of them were waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake, and. Um, Going into 2008, I was meditating one morning and actually thinking, you know, what am I going to do about this? And I had this idea, what would George Mueller do? A guy named George Mueller is one of my heroes. He built uh, a lot of orphanages in um, Bristol, England. All through the 1800s, he housed a total of almost 10,000 orphans. And he did it all with no debt, no bank financing, uh, without really even asking anybody for anything. And so... Um, I had read his biography and I thought, what would he do? Well, first of all, he wouldn't be in debt. So that got me, you know, I already have one strike against me. But (laughs) I also thought, Antoine, that he would do something really, really radical. You know, he really believed that whatever you um, reap, whatever you sow, you will reap. And what, you know, the the law of karma in some people's words, you know, that whatever you give, you'll get back. And so I told my family and my friends, hey, we're on the verge of bankruptcy, but don't worry. <clears throat> we're going to give our way out of debt. And they're like, what? And I said, we're going to start giving aggressively to these nonprofits we really, really care about. And we're going to give a certain amount every week. And we're either going to be sunk 
or count some miracles going to happen really quick. And you watch, and uh, I think it'll be the miracle. And four weeks later, I got an idea that came completely out of nowhere. And within 13 months, we were completely debt free. And what was that idea? It's very complicated, but I'll tell you in summary, (laughs) um, we had a five acre waterfront parcel that could not be subdivided. We had completely speculated on a public road coming in front of it and it wasn't happening. Oh, wow. uh, very, very foolish decision. And uh, I think we owed like 900,000 almost on that piece of land, eight or 900,000. And the bank, you know, uh, we owed the bank that money and we were paying all this interest rate on it, all this interest on it. And, um, Anyway, uh, I found a very, very obscure law. Well, I found a law that was somewhat obscure that said you could subdivide your land one time. And I actually figured out a way to use that law. And right in the eyes of the county, I mean, I went and told the county two days after I had the idea on January 28th, 2008, I think, I went and told them my idea. And I said, I think we can subdivide it five times, not just once. And they said, no, you can't. I said, well, look at this. And I showed them this little thing in the law that uh, could be interpreted in a completely different way. And this lady stared at me and shook her head. She said, I've been working here for decades. No one has ever noticed that. She wow. said, you're right. And so oh, wow. um, we sold that land. Uh, instead of having like a $900,000 loss or foreclosure, we ended up selling that for about $1.4 million right in five different lots, right in the heart of the recession uh, in the fall of 2008. And we ended up selling quite a few other properties we had during that year as well. Wow. That's incredible. Jeez. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've... Crazy story. Yeah, subdividing lots has always been... Or I know of... Because a lot of people here in Los Angeles, too, try to get into lots, and lots are super expensive, and buying lots and splitting lots and doing the whole subdivision thing, but I think it's a super risky investment for... Especially people who, who want to get started and doing the whole ground-up thing, and especially in a place like California where it can take you a year or two to even just get the permits or the ready to issue permits and then yeah it's very risky yeah so what do you think before we have a couple minutes left so what do you think um of the current state of the market are you worried or is wellings capital worried about what may happen to the market in the next 12 24 months or are you guys still bullish on apartments and self-storage because you don't think it's going to a recession or some hit to the market is going to affect your investments. You know, we were looking for recession-resistant assets, and the number one recession-resistant asset, at least that we know of, um, is uh, mobile home parks. And I could explain tons of data behind that. But bottom line is, in 2008, if you look at all the graphs, every single asset class and sector took a dip in 2008. I think, I think, even healthcare. Uh, did some uh, healthcare, real estate, wow. but uh, mobile home parks didn't have any perceptible dip at all, and so it's the number one uh, recession-resistant asset. Self storage is number two, and again, I got a lot of data for why. But the the summary as of think about it, if somebody's downsizing in a yep. bad economy, yep. they're going to need a place to store some stuff. If they're buying a whole bunch of stuff in a good economy, they're going to need a place to store some stuff. Yeah. And so um, it really is true 
Now, it doesn't mean every facility will do well. That's why you have to be very, very selective on where you're going to invest. We're looking at a deal right now that, you know, it looks like there's too much competition and we don't feel comfortable with it, for example. So, um, but at any rate, we don't feel worried about the potential of a recession or downturn. Um, We, one of our tenets is that we want to be investing like Buffett and Munger and they invest with quite a large margin of safety and we're trying to do that as well. We're investing in deals where we're telling our investors it looks like we're targeting a 15% or better total return. But then we look at the actual deal and we're going internally, we're like, man, this should return like 40% per year, not 15, Yeah, yeah. you know? Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, being very conservative with the underwriting. Yeah, we do the same, we do the same kind of thing as well and make all of our, you know, after repair rents as low as we possible and then yeah. see what the returns are. And if it hits 15%, that's our green light as well to move forward. Nice. Nice. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great chatting with you today. Um, any final words of advice for millennials who may want to get started in real estate investing, how they can get started today in a market as crazy as 2019? Yeah, I'm just going to buzz very quickly, I promise, through a, a quick list. Number one, they can loan money to flippers. Number two, they can do notes. Number three, they can invest. They can convert their 401k to an IRA and invest through that. Yeah. Uh, number four, they can invest passively with a syndicator like mm-hmm. Wellings Capital, like us. Uh, number five, they can be a deal finder for somebody else, like that guy who said, hey, if I find a deal, would you invest? Number six, they can be a capital raiser. Uh, They can raise capital for somebody else. And number seven, like I said earlier, they can get started by doing uh, rent-to-own or lease option sandwiches. Love it. Awesome. That's several quick ways people can get started. Yeah, love it. And how can people reach out to you if they want to reach out? Or how can people, you know, your book or time to plug away? Yeah, um, our uh, Amazon, our books on Amazon. It's called "The Perfect Investment: Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily." And um, I also have a podcast, "How to Lose Money," howtolosemoney.com. Uh, the main way to reach me personally is at our website, wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S Capital.com. Awesome! Thank you so much, Paul. It was great having you on today. Thanks, Antoine. It was a real honor, man. Thank you. Thank you.